Our reading is taken from John chapter 1, and I'm starting at the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is God's word. Friends, do keep that passage open. Let's pray. God our Father, we ask that by your grace and kindness you would enable me to speak truly and faithfully and that you would help us all to hear these truths uh, in ways that change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. Friends, how deep is your Christianity, if you call yourself a Christian? Is your Christianity a pond or a puddle that you paddle around in, splash around for a bit of spice added to life? Or is it the ocean in which you swim that defines your existence? If you're not a Christian, and we're so glad to have you here What is your impression of Christianity? Is it that Christianity is a lifestyle choice, essentially a shallow thing, a cultural thing, or is it a deep and life-changing thing? My fear is that if you're not a Christian and you watched me, maybe others of us, you might sometimes come to the conclusion that Christianity was a shallow thing, 
So, for example, the defining question that goes right to the heart of Christianity is the question, who is Jesus? And all too often, and I've done this myself, all too often the, question, the answer that Christians give is this, we just say, Jesus is God. It's like the Sunday school child, isn't it? The Sunday school child knows that that's the right answer. Jesus is God. Of course Jesus is God. How stupid the Pharisees were not to notice. How thick and how slow the disciples were not to notice. Of course it's obvious that Jesus is God, isn't it? It trips off the Christian tongue. The trouble is it's not in the least bit obvious. The statement Jesus is God is manifestly absurd, isn't it? It's what our Muslim friends would say. It's what most thinking people would say. Most thinking people would say that if there is a God of any kind, that God must be above and beyond this created order. So to say that a human being, a particular human being who lived at a particular time and in a particular place, a mortal human being who got tired and finally died, to say that this human being is God is manifestly Absurd, isn't it? I want to preach to us this morning, with God's help, an irrelevant sermon. I'm conscious that in any gathering this size, there'll be quite a number of us who come this morning with hearts heavy, hearts full of griefs or sadness or fear or anxiety or or just perplexity and concern. And we come with all manner of different concerns. And if you're a Christian man or woman, you you, you come to church and you you say to yourself, "I, I hope that the sermon might help me with the stuff that I'm struggling with. And I want to give you a sermon that may not help you at all, except that Every ingredient of Christian hope rests on this. Everything. Every consolation that there is in the Christian faith, every comfort in anxiety, every hope in trouble and despair rests on the truth that we're going to to, to hear. I want us to listen as the man who was the closest friend of Jesus of Nazareth, the man who describes himself discreetly, really, in his book as the disciple Jesus loved, his closest friend, his most intimate friend, the one to whom Jesus of Nazareth opened his heart more than to any other human being. Not Peter, who was the natural leader of the apostles, but John, the gospel writer. And at the beginning of John's first letter, the, the, the book in the Bible we call 1 John, he says, I want to talk to you, I want to write to you about the, 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 the man we, we saw, we looked upon with our eyes, we heard, we, we touched, we lived with him for those three years. And I want to talk to you about him and I want to tell you his story. But as John begins his gospel, what we call his gospel, the gospel according to John, He says, before I begin, and in this extraordinary passage that we're listening to this morning, which must be one of the most extraordinary pieces of literature in the whole of human history, John's prologue, it's like the front door and the entrance hall to the story. And he says, before we begin, I I want to tell you some things 
to think about. And, and, and the, 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 the reason he does that, I take it, somebody said that, that it's a bit like the overture to an opera, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, you get used to some of the tunes that are going to play later. Sorry, it's not a very highbrow way of describing it, but that's what an overture is, isn't it? You get used to some of the tunes. You think ting-a-ding-ting-ting-ting, and then you notice ting-a-ding-ting-ting-ting later. That's a silly little illustration, but it's it's like an overture to 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 to, to the opera. It's like it's like the key to the book. So John, the the gospel writer, is saying, as I tell the story of this man, and we're going to launch into the story next week. As I tell this story, I want you to know something about the subject of the story. And if you, if you can begin to get hold of this, it'll be the key to the story. And you'll see how the story validates the, 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 the claim that I'm making at the beginning. And I guess Paul, uh, um, John also does it to whet our appetites. And uh, I want to say something by way of reassurance. I, I've been struggling this w- week. I've been, I've preached this prologue to John's Gospel several times, as, as most Christian ministers have. And I thought to myself, maybe this isn't going to be too difficult a sermon to preach. And this week, as I've got the prologue out, I've been swimming around in it like a drowning man. And I've been thinking to myself again and again, I really don't understand this. And just to encourage us, I take it that one of the reasons John gives us this at the beginning is to whet our appetites and if I could just say by way of reassurance, if you get to the end of these first 18 verses of John's Gospel this morning and you think, I really don't understand that, it doesn't matter so long as, like me, you say to yourself, I need to understand this. It's like a master chef giving us a, a, a master chef giving us a little spoonful of some wonderful cooking. And we don't need to be able to reconstruct what all the ingredients were and how he did it or she did it. So long as we say to ourselves, this is great and I need more of this. And I take it that's partly why John does this. So that we get to the end, we get to verse 18 and we think, there's lots in here that's too deep. I don't understand this, but I need to understand this. Because if this is true, this is life-changing stuff. In my preparation, I had some incredibly complicated headings and I've scrapped them all. And I've given on the on the um, the back of the service sheet four very simple headings. And the first one is this: who he was. And verses one to five, John tells it says, "I want to tell you who the subject of my story was." And by was, I don't mean was and isn't anymore. I mean was and is and always will be unchangeably. And he says at the very beginning, in the beginning, and the beginning, I guess it echoes Genesis chapter 1, but it's a different kind of beginning. Genesis chapter 1 is talking about um, the first event in the history of the universe, that beginning. But John here is talking about what Augustine called the beginning that has no beginning. He's talking about from before time began, and he's saying right at the heart of the universe in eternity past and before time began was the Word. And that's a strange way to start a story, isn't it? The Word. A word is self-expression, isn't it? When you and I speak words, the words we speak go out from us. They are distinct from us, but if we're honest people, they express something of us. That's what a word does. It is self-expression. If we're honest people, it expresses something of us. So in the beginning, there was some self-expression, some 
speaking, some communication, some meaning. And the word was with God. So this self-expression was with God in some way, in fellowship with God, in partnership with God, with God, in, 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 a, in what, what we're going to see later is a communion of love. And the word was God, at which point your brain hurts. And you'd say to yourself, okay, John, so you're saying to me that this word was God with God. Was God and with God. God with God, that at the heart of reality, there is God with God. God in relationship with God. And if you're an arrogant person, you say, well, this must be a load of rubbish because I can't understand it. But if you're a wise man or woman, you say, I'm not surprised I can't understand reality. If reality was a puddle or a pond I could splash around in, it'd be rather sad. So I say, I hang on in there and I say, God with God, God in relationship with God. Personal, verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 3, through him all things were made. This word, and of course for Bible readers, we think of Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks, and through his speaking, it's not just a communication of himself, it is a doing of something, and the universe springs into being. Through him, all things were made. He is the agent of creation, and without him, nothing was made that has been made, really nothing. Everything, everything large and small, visible, invisible, material, spiritual, psychological, everything in the universe, everything that exists was made through his agency, this God with God, who was the personal expression of God, uh, God's word. And verse 4, in him was life, every plant that grows, every animal that breathes or whose heart beats, every human being, every life, every baby that's born in him. And that life was the light of people and the light shines. So John says at the beginning of his story, he says the story I'm talking about is the story that concerns reality, all reality. You and I can try, as many people do, to live in virtual worlds of escapism, of imaginary worlds. But sooner or later, we bump up against reality. Sooner or later we do. And when we bump up against reality, we bump up against the subject of this story. And in verse 5, John says, the light shines in the darkness. And we say, what's darkness got to do with it? Where's darkness come from? And in using that image of light and darkness... John is saying something. He's saying that evil, darkness, sin, disorder, misery is is not equal and opposite to light, life, and goodness. Darkness is a sort of... Darkness and light are not like black and white paint. Darkness, Darkness is the absence of light. And the moment light shines, darkness flees. There's a question of which is stronger, light or darkness. It's easy. You turn the light on, you turn your torch on, and the darkness flees. And so he says that in some sense, this light, this personal expression of God with God, is the one in whom 
darkness flees, or before whom darkness flees. Darkness is non-light. Evil is non-being. Evil has no substantial existence. Of course, we rub up against evil in our own hearts and in a messed up world, but it has no substantial existence. And when at the end of verse 5, John says the darkness has not understood it, the word translated understood has the double meaning of, it's like the word grasp. It hasn't grasped it in the sense of understood light, but it also hasn't grasped it in the sense of overcome the light. Darkness cannot conquer light. When light is switched on, light will win. And so John, in this cryptic beginning says, at the heart of the universe, there is God with God, the personal expression of God through whom all things were made. I'm talking about all reality. And we want to say to him, well, John, I I like a bit of philosophical speculation. Um, It's fascinating. It tickles me to think about this sort of thing and God with God. And I can play around with that in my university seminar quite happily for a while. But how do you know? And in verses 6 to 8, John plunges us into history, and I've called this what God said. Verse 6 is a great surprise. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, not John the Gospel writer, but John we call John the Baptist that we'll meet uh, next week, a particular man sent from God. And this man came, verse 7, as a witness to testify concerning the light. He's the one through whom we know that this is true, so that through him all kinds of people might believe. He wasn't the light. He came as a witness, just a witness to the light. Now, if you, I don't know about you, but, but if you read this, I say to myself, why, having had this magnificent cosmic stuff, about God with God and, you know, through whom the universe was made. Why do you suddenly have this one human being, John the Baptist, being mentioned? Why does he get a a, a look in at verse 6 suddenly, out of nowhere? Besides, I want to say to, 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 to the gospel writer, I want to say, okay, so one man says it's true. Yeah, but I can go around and find a hundred delusional men and women who will say anything is true. What's the significance of this man? Now, here's the thing. John the Baptist was the last and one of the very greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Although he appears in the New Testament, he's an Old Testament figure. He's an Old Covenant figure. He's the last of them. Moses was the first, really, prototypical prophet. And John the Baptist is the last. And together with Elijah, they're they're in the kind of premier league of prophets. And John the Baptist, when he gives his testimony, we'll, we'll hear some of it next week, When he gives his testimony, he's not speaking as an isolated individual. He is giving the accumulated testimony of the whole of the Old Testament. This man's testimony, and you find this all through John's Gospel, he's saying the whole of the Old Testament, the whole story of Israel, all the story of the kings who were never quite the kings they ought to be, and the priests who were never quite the priests they ought to be, and the sacrifices that never quite did what they were meant to do, and the temple that never quite did what it was meant to do, the whole of that story and the wise men in the Old Testament who were never quite as wise as they ought to be, all of that story was testimony that one day a man would come who would be everything that this story anticipated and foreshadowed. And we'll see more of that next week. And we'll see that the testimony that John the Baptist gives is is in entirely in Old Testament terms. 
So he's saying if you want to believe, if you want to understand, it's no good just speculating in empty philosophy. You need to look at the story of the Old Testament. You need to look at this hard historical evidence. You need to look at the patterns. You need to look at what was said and done in that story. And then you can grasp what's happening now. So there's what God said. Then the gospel writer jumps. In verses 9 to 13, he jumps. He jumps from the Old Testament, ending with John the Baptist's testimony. He jumps to what happens after the subject of his story arrives. And he says, I want to tell you what happens when this true light that gives light to every man comes into the world, verse 9. Incidentally, that doesn't mean that every human being has a divine spark within them. You read the rest of John's Gospel, it's patently obvious that quite a number of characters in John's Gospel don't have a divine spark within them. They have darkness within them. So it doesn't mean that. It seems to mean something like this, that that, um, imagine a town in which there is just a small town or village in which there is just one school teacher you know, go back a a couple of centuries. There's one school teacher in that town. If you want to learn anything in that town, you've got to go to that school teacher. There's nowhere else to go to to get the teaching, to get the learning. Of course, you can choose not to, and if you don't, you won't get the learning. But that's the only place to go. And so when John says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, he seems to be saying this is the light that gives light to anyone who gets light. This is the only source of light, the only source of understanding, the only source of life and truth. And he says, I want to show you what happens when he comes into the world. And in verses 10 to 13, he gives us a story that begins with a terrible rejection and ends with a wonderful adoption. There's a negative and a positive, and they're not opposites. So verse 10 He, this light, this God with God, this word of God, this self-expression of God who is himself God, through whom everything was made, he was in the world. He'd come into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, we saw that earlier, everything that was made was made through him, the world did not recognize him, did not acknowledge him. Recognized there, not just in the sense of grasp that this is who it is, but recognize rather in the sense that we talk about recognizing a government in diplomatic terms, acknowledging the validity of him, bowing before him. The world did not do that. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, which seems to be a reference to the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. So the gospel writer seems to be saying, in general terms, he came to the human race, and he found that the human race... And, and, and John often uses the world in this sense in his, in his gospel. The human race didn't acknowledge their creator, didn't acknowledge the one through whom the world was, was made. The human race rejected. And the Jewish people, verse 11, by and large rejected. That's not an anti-Semitic comment. John, the gospel writer, is a Jew. Some Jews accepted. But most of them rejected, and their rejection is a kind of picture of the rejection of all the rest of us by nature. They weren't any worse than us. They weren't any better than us. That's their rejection. That's what happened. 
the one who made the, through whom the world was made came into the world and the world did not recognize him. But, verse 12, to all who received him, so his own people didn't receive him. By and large, the world didn't receive him, but there were some who did. And they're described in verse 12 as those who believed in his name. That is his nature, all that he is, and all that he came to be and to do. They trusted in that. And he gave them the right to become children of God. And then in verse 13, he describes them as children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, that's a really wonderful thing. That anticipates in John's gospel everything Jesus will teach about God the Holy Spirit, who gives new birth to men and women who trust in Christ and and makes them sons and daughters of God, so so as to be able to call God Father, and that is a wonderful thing. But I want us to notice that the contrast here is not between verses 10 and 11, stupid people who didn't acknowledge the one who made the world, and sensible people, verses 12 and 13, who did. And as a reward for that, they got turned into children of God. Well done, good boys and girls, you can be children of God. It's not that. And the whole language of being made children of God um, shows that that can't be right. I didn't choose to be conceived and born. I couldn't. It's beyond us to do that, isn't it, naturally? And I didn't choose to be conceived and born spiritually either. There's a silly story told of a a 10-year-old boy who was asked some years ago, when people never talked about these things, to write an essay on birth. And uh, he, 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 um, researching this essay, he went and asked his grandmother. He said, um, Nan, um, how, was, uh, how, how, how was I born? And uh, she said, well, uh, your mum and dad wanted a baby, so they asked, and asked God, and a stork came and uh, put you under a, a gooseberry bush, and there you were, and that's how you were born. The boy looked a bit puzzled, so he said, well, how how was my mum born? So his granny says, "Um, yeah, it was the same for her. You know, Grandpa and I wanted a baby, and so we asked God, and God, um, you know, sent a stork, and and, and, and then there was your mum under a gooseberry bush. It's wonderful. (laughs) So then then he said, well, well, Granny, how about you? How were you born? He said, well, my my mum and dad, they asked God, and God sent a stork, and, you know, the stork put me under a gooseberry bush, and there I was. And the boy started his essay, there hasn't been a natural birth in our family for three generations. (laughs) It's a silly story, isn't it? But spiritual birth is a wonderful thing. And the contrast here is between human beings, all of whom by nature reject the one who created us. And some human, human, human beings in whom God wonderfully gives new birth as a gift from above. So no Christian can say, well done me, I made a good decision to follow Jesus, and as a reward for my goodness and my wisdom, I've been made a child of God. Not at all. It's purely his grace, but there is that division. But then in verses 14 to 18, John comes to his punchline. 
who he was, verses 1 to 5, God with God, what God said, verses 6 to 8, all through the Old Testament, summed up by John the Baptist, how we split into those who reject and those who are made children of God, and then 14 to 18, what he did. Verse 14, the word became flesh. This is the most amazing miracle in all of human history. And we who are Christian people think about this not nearly as much as we should. That this word who is personal, who is God with God from all eternity, through whom the universe is created, without ceasing to be fully divine, without ceasing to be God, should take upon himself a human nature so that he was fully human, he became fully human, so that within Jesus of Nazareth, a human nature and a divine nature were combined perfectly into one person. Don't ask me how. This is far deeper than anything anybody can explain. So that without ceasing to be fully God for one moment, he became flesh. And the word flesh has the sense of mortality and weakness. He became flesh. And he dwelt, verse 14, he made his dwelling. He lived, as it were, like in a tent amongst us. And it's an echo of the Old Testament tent or tabernacle where God dwelt with his people. And in that human nature, with the divine nature of the one person, Jesus Christ, God dwelt on earth. It is not surprising people didn't get it. Most Sunday school children who glibly say of Jesus is God haven't begun to think about the wonder of this and the depth of this. I don't think we will ever get this. It is an astonishing and an amazing truth, but everything depends on it. So John says in verse 14, we, and he's talking about we apostles, we've seen his glory, the outward shining, even though it was veiled in flesh. In the words of that old hymn, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Even though it was veiled, we've seen his glory. We've seen the shining of his being so that finally we grasped who it was who walked among us, who we looked upon and touched. And as you read John's gospel, you find that glory is paradoxically associated with being lifted up on the cross. And supremely, as you read John's gospel, the point where we saw his glory was the point where we saw self-giving love poured out on the cross. We've seen his glory. And just as the whole created order is the overflow of the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit within God, so the Lord Jesus' glory is the outflow of the love of the Father to a needy world. And this is a wonderful thing. And he says grace And truth, he was full of grace and truth. He came from the Father. And the words grace and truth, we'll talk about this more next week, but grace and truth speak of Old Testament fulfillment. So grace is God's steadfast love. Truth is his truthfulness, his faithfulness to his promises. And grace and truth, which dominate these last few verses, speak of the fulfillment of everything God promised all through the Old Testament, that God would dwell amongst his people that men and women's hearts would be changed from the inside by the Spirit, 
that God would rescue people and put right a broken world. And so John testifies, John the Baptist, verse 15, he, he, he surpassed me. He comes after me. I'm older than him in years, but he comes after me. He was before me. He's greater than me. And verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. That is new covenant blessing following after old covenant blessing. Because the law was given through Moses and there was grace in that. It was a wonderful thing. We were thinking about that in our preaching through Deuteronomy. The law of God, the, the, the old covenant, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. There was blessing there. But grace and truth, fulfillment of all God's promises came through Christ. And verse 18, no one has ever seen God, that is God the Father. But God the one and only, or the one and only Son, who is himself God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. At the Father's side is a little bit weak. At the Father's side, the old translations had in the Father's bosom. And we find that a little bit embarrassing. So we can't quite cope with that. But it's better. The new NIV says, in the closest relationship with the Father. And the point is that this Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Word become flesh, is the one who from all eternity has known God the Father perfectly, intimately. And he has, he therefore is the one who has the ability to make him known, to publish him, to, to make him visible, so that the invisible God becomes visible in Jesus Christ. And we see in him all that it is possible for human beings to see of the Father. Now, friends, I don't know how you um, are uh, coping, whether you're hanging on by your fingernails, this extraordinary passage. We'll come back to these truths, or some of them, next week. But let me sum up, and uh, then I must finish, or we'll never have our annual church lunch. Let me, let me try and sum up. The gospel writer says, at the heart of the universe, there is a relationship between God and God. The heart of the universe, there is love. At the heart of the universe, there is a father and a son, a son who has always been son. He didn't become son, he's always been son. And we'll see later at the heart of the universe, there is God, the Holy Spirit as well. At the heart of the universe, all existence, physical, material, spiritual, psychological, all existence is the outflow of that love, the overflow of that love which is why existence, for all its messiness, has beauty and order and loveliness in it, because it is the outflow of love of God with God from all eternity. And then he says, this one who was God with God, this one who is the self-expression of God, the word of God, became flesh and walked among us. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God with God. Jesus is the perfect self-expression of God. Jesus is the Son who has known God the Father from all eternity perfectly and who alone is able to publish God the Father and to make him known. And because he is the Son of God from all eternity, he alone has the power and authority and the ability to make human beings children of God, sons and daughters of God. He who was God with God from all eternity became a human being 
became flesh, in order that flesh, human beings like us, might be made into children of God. If you have got to the point where you're thinking, I don't understand this, but it sounds wonderful, and if it's true, I need to read this gospel, then just tell me at lunchtime and I'll be encouraged. I'll feel that this time we've, these minutes we've had together have not been wasted. If you're not a Christian believer and you've had the impression that Christianity is shallow, I want to say to you this morning, Christianity is deep. And any Christian, and it may be me, who's given you the impression that Christianity is shallow, has not begun to, 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 to show you the depths that there are in real Christianity. Let's be quiet for a moment, and then I'll pray. God, our Father, we praise and thank you, we adore you, that because of the Lord Jesus, your eternal Son, it is possible for us to be your sons and daughters, to call you Father, and to know that you are our Father. We praise and adore you for that wonderful love by which your Son became flesh for us. In Jesus' name, amen.